0: Good morning. Today we're going to wrap up our series on identity, especially we're talking about uh, the power that our identity has, the influence that identity has. It determines so much the way we think, the way we behave, the choices we make. Um, Ultimately, it sets the trajectory of our lives. So it's really huge. Um, as i 've been studying this, thinking about this, um, for one, I want to say uh, thank you for your feedbacks. Several of you have mentioned um, that this is exactly what you needed to hear uh, and i 've also just kind of opened my eyes and just study and there are so many books that deal with this. Um, there's a movie out now called Overcomer. A couple of our uh, folks went to see that and said, Randy, you either watched that movie and got your sermons or, or they heard your sermons and made a movie because uh, it's all about identity. Lion King. I mean, how can anybody forget Mufasa? Remember who you are. I mean, it's just that message, that theme is everywhere. CBS News had a story about nominative determinism. You ever heard of it? Nominative determinism. You may not know the name, but you've heard of it. It's where your name determines your destiny. Uh, so it's like whatever you are called, that kind of determines who you become. In the article, there's a professor at NYU, Adam uh, Alter. He talks about how the, the, a person's name can shape their life and destiny. He gives a classic example, um, Usain Bolt. I mean, fastest man on the earth, just happens to be called... Named Bolt. But maybe that's just a coincidence. But he says, prove it or not, there are countless entertaining examples like Williams Wordsworth was a poet, Jules Angst, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, Sarah Blizzard, Amy Freeze, Larry Sprinkle, Dallas Rains. Yeah, meteorologist. Some of you may be thinking about Danielle Breezy from Nashville. He mentions Dr. Richard Payne, known for his expertise in the field of pain relief. (laughs) Prince Fielder, heard of him? Pro baseball player. His dad, also obviously named Fielder, was also a pro baseball player. Daniel Snowman has written a number of books on the Arctic. (laughs) Dr. Randall Toothaker is a dentist. You get the idea, right? (laughs) But are they coincidences, or is there more to it? Alter says, researchers have shown that our names take root deep within our mental worlds, and they draw us magnetically toward the concept they embody. So subconscious or not, our names take root. That's the idea. Now here's the question. Do you buy into that? I'm I'm quite skeptical myself. It's entertaining, but I, I, I just don't know. Then I thought about some of the good people in this church, and what do your names tell us about you? We have three generations of youngs, but they're all young. How do you carry a couch? <laughs> we got a whole family of foxes up in the balcony. Does Jake really skid more? <clears throat> Anybody ever wondered about the name Rush Holiday? What about Porter? Is Porter a porter or is he a king? I think Captain and Malia Ayers should have one more child, a boy, and call him Million. <laughs> Nobody would ever do that, right? According to the article, New York businessman Michael Ayer, A-Y-E-R, no S, never had trouble making decisions, but picking a name for his only son was a tough one. Bored with the conventional family tree, he went out on a limb, way out, ready for it? They named their son Billion as in billionaire. 16 years after his parents named him Billion, 11th grader Billionaire seems just fine playing in the school golf team and then the band. Quote, being named Billionaire, you stand out more, he said. And so people I've never met know me, and I don't even know their name. The article ends, perhaps Billionaire will grow up to become a billionaire. And so we'll finally know if it's really in a name. Nominative determinism. That's really what we're talking about here. That names, labels, what we're called, the way we see ourselves, identity has a lot of power. Every week I've mentioned to you the little name tag Hello, I am. And if you didn't put your name, what word would you place in there to identify yourself? What term, what nickname, what description, whatever you write there has a lot of power in your life. So the question is what is your identity? Because the reality is, and this is what we've been talking about, it's so easy to live in a mistaken identity. So we're drilling down to what is the truest thing about you, because sometimes what we think is true about us is not true at all. But we believe it to be true, and we live like it is true. And if you believe it to be true, it has the same power over you. You know the verse, Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But does the Bible get that right? Is that true, that you live out what you believe about yourself? Consider this. Louis Lapidese wrote about the SCAR experiment. A scientific researcher assembled 10 volunteers for a psychological study. They wanted to determine if a stranger would respond to somebody different if they had some alternate physical appearance or, or such as a facial scar. And so what they did, the participants, the participants were separated into 10 different cubicles, no mirrors, and using Hollywood makeup techniques. The researcher then, they put on these gruesome stars on each of the volunteers' left cheek. Now, there are no mirrors in the cubicle. When they got it all on there, they gave them a little hand mirror so they could quickly see it, see what it looked like, take a, gl- a glance at it, and then they took the mirror away. And then they were told one last step then was to put on some finishing powder, one last layer that would seal it, keep it from coming off. But what the participants didn't know is that they actually, that last step was removing it completely. So then they were sent out into different medical offices to sit in the waiting room and their goal was just to observe how people responded to them with this hideous scar that they thought was on their face, but it was gone. All 10 of them did this, all 10 of them came back, and they all shared the same report. They all said that people were ruder to them, less kind, and that people stared at their scar. It wasn't there. There was nothing there, but they saw people staring at them The common quote was, people kept staring at my scar. They were more self conscious. They held their own heads down more. But it wasn't even true. But they believed it to be true. They thought they had the scar on their face. It ends like this. The SCAR experiment illustrated how an unhealthy perspective on yourself affects how you think others see you and how you perceive how they treat you. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And really, this is the theme of the first three chapters of Ephesians. He opens the letter, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. We've looked at this verse. To the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then for the next 14 verses, he mentions that phrase, in Christ, in him, 11 times. Because God wants us to have the right picture. Last week we talked about this. Chapter 1, we are identified as adopted by God. Chapter 2, we are God's masterpiece. Chapter 3, we are loved by God. This is who you are. And the rest of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, talk about how we should live based on the right understanding of who you are. So for the next coming weeks, I want us to spend some time in chapters 4, 5, and 6 talking about these things, these important truths that Paul waited until the second half of the letter, because first he wanted them to understand who they were. So today, what I want to do is give you a quick preview. So look there in chapter 4, kind of the beginning of the second half of the letter, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, Put it on the screen with the three dots of therefore. If you're a math person, you've seen that word before. Uh, We mark our Bibles in precept study, and therefore is a key word. You know this truth of Bible study. Whenever you read the word therefore, you stop and ask yourself, what is it therefore? Because everything that follows that word is hinged upon what happened before that word. What was said before that word therefore? I looked it up, that phrase. First, I thought it was a grammar. I couldn't remember the the symbol, where I had learned that. It's actually a mathematical uh, symbol. In a logical argument and a mathematical proof, the therefore sign is generally used as a logical consequence, such as the conclusion of a syllogism. And that's exactly what's happening here in this letter. He writes these first three chapters, know who you are, and then beginning in chapter four, he says, therefore This is how you behave. This is what you do. This is how you live. It's really interesting. He says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, look at the wording there, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live your life according to what God's called you. I think that's interesting because who you are in Christ, who God's called you, you're adopted, you're a masterpiece. He loves you. God's called you. This is who you are. Therefore, walk accordingly. So here's a little preview, a couple of things we're going to look into the next couple of weeks. Number one, who you are should impact the way you treat others. Who you are should impact the way you treat others. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. The NIV says make an allowance for, for each other's faults because of your love. This is who you are in Christ. It should affect the way you treat other people. So you be humble. You be gentle with one another. It's part of living out that identity. And think about it. When you think about God's grace toward you, when you think about how much God loves you, then that should be an automatic reminder of being gracious and loving to the people around you. Paul mentions one way he's revealed that is how we talk with others. And what you're going to notice as you read through the rest of the letter. He keeps bringing this up. He hits it and he comes back to it. For example, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief... No longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then back to talking. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I was reading through that, and maybe it strikes you as well that verse 28 about the thief is kind of stuck in there. And wait a minute, Paul, you're kind of going back and forth. Because we understand if you're a thief and now you're a child of God, you need to stop stealing. Right? I mean, this is automatic. Just instantly. Just stop. Don't do it anymore. We get that. But do we get that the way we talk should have just the same kind of line in the sand kind of moment? Not only if I'm a thief, I'm not going to steal anymore. But if I've not been watching my words, if I'm ugly with my speech, that too is going to be a line in the sand because of who I am us in. Who you are on the inside should be determined of what comes out of your mouth. Before Christ, you might have had some salty words come out of your mouth. Before Christ, you might have been just as crass as the other guys on the team. And it's really not just guys. It's girls too. It could be women as much as men. That may be the way you taught before you were in Christ, but not anymore. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I read this week about a college student, first year of college, had to take speech, kind of a normal class for a college to take, college student to take. So when he went in the first day of class, the speech teacher said, Let's begin with an impromptu assignment. She just want everybody to get up and talk. You know, that's kind of the way it goes. So I want you to stand up, let your class know your favorite cuss word. And tell them why it's your favorite. Went around the room. Everybody stood up, said their favorite cuss word, why it was their favorite. Went around the room, came to this one young man who said, I don't have a favorite cuss word. Why? Because I don't cuss, he said. He was brought up in a Christian home, he was known, he was taught to, to be like Jesus. That was not who he was. He said the teacher was flabbergasted and didn't even know what to say about that. But think about it. That student was just really living out his identity, even in that classroom situation. We even talk differently to others because of our identity. Verse 31, he tells us how to behave toward them. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because of who you are, you forgive. So one of those songs we just sang is we found forgiveness in the Lord so we're able to forgive. He continues in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. And look at the words there. As beloved children... And walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why? Why do do that? Because you're God's child. That's why you do it. It's who you are. Remember who you are. You imitate God. Number two, who you are should impact your morality. That may not be the best word. That's the first one I could think of, really. It's talking about your your sexual morality, your general morality. You're just choosing what is right in any given circumstance. But in chapter 5, verse 3, he goes on, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as there is proper among the saints. Another identifying word there. You're a saint. So he lists this. Now, You and I might read through that and go, well, of course, that's true. But for the Christians in Ephesus, they needed to hear this because sexual immorality was common in the religious practice of their day in that temple. That was what everybody did. And it was expected. It was the norm. And so for him to write this way is saying your identity in Christ should make a difference there because that's not you anymore. Maybe that was you before Christ, but it's not who you are now. And then number three, who you are should impact the home. Chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful passages about husbands and wives. So much so that it's not uncommon to hear some of these verses, including in a wedding ceremony. Beautiful passage about the love relationship and how to treat and, and respond to one another. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, look at verse uh, 33, chapter 5, verse 33. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. As much as any culture in any age might struggle to have successful marriages for the first century Christians, this was just as challenging, if not more so, to this Roman culture, to Paul was writing here, it was not for them, for the men to think that way toward the women, for the husband to think that way toward the wives. Paul says, honor her, cherish her, give yourself up for her, just as Jesus did for the church. That's the commitment you have. And so for that culture, that had to be hard to hear, maybe even offensive to hear, that that's the way now, now that I'm in Christ, I'm supposed to treat my wife, treat my husband even in marriage, you look at that. You respond through the lens of who you are as a follower of Jesus. Then in chapter 6, he addresses children. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why should kids obey their parents? The New Living Translation says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, and this is the right thing to do. That's who you are. See, children, have the first authority in their lives, their parents. Parents, you are that first authority figure. And so there's times where you might even say, because I said so. And they need to learn that. But there comes a time when that's not enough. We've talked about this. When they're leaving home, they're going out with some friends, we'll say the words, just like Mufasa, remember who you are. Remember who you are. It should stand out. In a good way. If you're a child of God, you might remember the news story a number of years ago about a missionary, Warren Beamer. He was visiting in Nigeria. I put a picture on the screen. Several uh, news agencies carried the story. The children were in this filthy, ragged. Just the the stench of excrement was everywhere, even in the dining hall. And the children there, some of you have been in situations where you you know this, they're so, the children are thrilled to see a visitor. Especially if you've got toys or or candy, they know it's going to be good for them. And so in this particular situation, they run around the corner, saw some of these little children, they're excitingly uh, chattering in a British accent because that particular area was a British colony in days gone by. Everybody was talking their little British accent except for one little boy who talked differently, when asked where he was from in pure Texan twang, he said, Houston. You don't expect a black boy in a Nigerian orphanage to say he's from Houston. But that's exactly what he said. It took him all back a little bit. So, Beamer, as he went in that room, found the other siblings there of this little boy. He thought, okay, is this true could it really be so we started asking them some questions who's your favorite team Houston Rockets who's your favorite player name 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 some of the some of the older ones started reciting their social security number they were talking about their teachers back in Houston their schools how much they missed domino's pizza even m- mentioned their church name where they went years ago Beamer started singing the national anthem. Every child stood up, put his hand on his heart, and sang along every word. Beamer was convinced, and he made a vow to get these Americans back home. The article said, with the help of the State Department, the children managed to go home without passports or paperwork. The next picture is from the Oprah show only picture I could find where all of them are together. I know what you're thinking. How could these American citizens, these children, be in this Nigerian orphanage? How does that happen? A lot of details, but let me just share just a little bit. It began when a lady named Mercury Liggins, adopted three girls and a boy from one family, and then two boys and a girl from another family. And since the older siblings, especially a group of them, are harder to adopt... She was paid $550 per child by the state. The mom became engaged to a Nigerian-born truck driver. They took the children to Nigeria, left the children with his brother. One report says, another says they're not sure who this man was. The woman took a job working in a food service in Iraq. That man stopped making payments, so the children were turned out. Finally, someone alerted the Nigerian child protection authorities and found them malnourished. Some were very sick with typhoid and malaria. Some of them couldn't walk, Place them in the orphanage. When Warren Beamer came upon them, while they may have looked like any of the other orphans, there was something about them that was different. They stood out. They talked differently. They acted differently. And he could just tell. That's what Paul is getting at here in this whole book. We do not belong in this world. We are citizens of heaven. There may be times where we look like everybody else in the room, everybody else on the job, everybody else around us. But we are different. We are a child of the king. And because that's who we are, that should change the way we talk. That should change the way we treat other people. That should change the way we make moral choices. That should change the way we relate with our families. That should change everything about us. So here's what I want to do as I uh, finish up this part of Ephesians. At the bottom of your outline that's on the screen as well is that sticker, Hello, I Am. And the question is, what is your identity? Other than your name, what is the one thing you would say that identifies you? And what I want to do is just share with you what the Bible says, who you are. Look at the screen In Christ, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I am a child of God. I am Christ's friend. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a saint in Christ. I am God's masterpiece. I'm part of God's family. I'm righteous. I'm a citizen of heaven. In Christ, I am chosen by God. In Christ, I am holy. I am called by God. I'm a foreigner in this world. I am justified. I am forgiven. In Christ, I am free. I am purchased. I am redeemed. In Christ, I am made complete. In Christ, I am saved. I am set apart. In Christ, I'm a new creation. In Christ, I am loved. In Christ, I am born of God. And the evil one cannot touch me. So I guess the question is, are you in Christ? That's the message that Paul makes here over and over again as he opens this very key book. Well, before he gets to how to live, he wants to know, are you his? Our invitation song is to give you an opportunity to be in Christ, to confess you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Let him make you that new creation. Let him give you his righteousness. Let him call you out. Let God adopt you. This morning, if you'd like to be baptized, we'd like to help you with that. Or if you're a Christian, we can just pray for you in any way as you try to live out your identity. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage